Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How would you go about convincing someone that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? Now, let's complicate the matter. What if that person didn't recognize Scripture as inspired by God? How would you go about making a case for the resurrection in that kind of scenario? Well, that is in fact the exact scenario many of us find ourselves in when we talk to our coworkers, neighbors, friends, and family. In this presentation, you'll learn four key pieces of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, including one, the honorable burial, two, the empty tomb, three, the resurrection appearances, and four, resurrection belief. You'll also become familiar with competing theories and how to respond to them. That's theories that compete with the biblical idea that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so I think this episode will really help to clarify for you how you can present a strong historical case for why you believe Jesus is raised from the dead to those who don't accept the Bible as authoritative. Here now is episode 392, Why Christianity, Part 5, The Resurrection of Jesus Happened. Number five, the resurrection happened. All right, it's not the most exciting title in the world, but it succinctly says what I'm trying to say here. Uh, please take your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. The other day I was on Twitter and I saw a survey there and it's, it asked the question, if the bones of Jesus were definitively identified in an archaeological dig, would you cease to be a Christian? It's a really interesting question. And 68% of us said, yes, I'd be done. If you find the bones of Jesus, I'm out. Not a Christian anymore. Uh, 13% said, I'm not sure. And 19% said, no, I'd still be a Christian. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? If they found the bones of Jesus, would you still be a Christian? Okay, okay. Fair, that's a fair point. Uh, he, he said, Timmy Paul said, how could we be sure those are the bones of Jesus? That's, that's a great point. If we could be sure those are the bones of Jesus, we could be sure that Jesus was never raised from the dead, I would no longer be a Christian. I would still believe in God because I gave reasons why I believe in God before. And none of those reasons were that God raised Jesus from the dead. But I wouldn't be a Christian because everything about Christ depends on resurrection. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, where it says, And if Christ has not been raised, this is what the Apostle Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Do you see that? This is what the Apostle says. This is not Sean Finnegan. This is Paul of Tarsus, right? He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, it's empty. And your faith is vain, it's empty. And we are even to be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most 
to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this is a big deal. The resurrection of Jesus is not a side issue. It's not an optional add-on to Christianity. This is the foundation stone upon which everything else is built as far as Christianity is concerned. Not as, I mean, if, if, if Christ wasn't raised, Judaism may still be true, or uh, maybe some other religious system might be true, but Christianity wouldn't be true, is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. But Christ is raised, and so it is true. So you see the, the way he's, he's working that out there. Now, in some sense, it was easier for Paul. In a very big sense, it was easier for Paul, being a first-generation Christian. Because Paul first of all, saw Jesus himself. And it wasn't all that pleasant of of an experience. It was uh, rather earth-shattering. You know, he got knocked off his his animal, and he went blind, and it took him three days, and then he finally turned his whole life around, and then pretty much right after that, he was persecuted. Anyhow, we have a different strategy. And this is something that's been developed by Gary Habermas. Uh, Gary Habermas said the following in a recent essay from 2012. He says, for more than 35 years, I have argued that surrounding the end of Jesus' life, there is a significant body of data that scholars of almost every religious and philosophical persuasion recognize as being historical. The historicity of each fact on the list is attested and supported by a variety of historical and other considerations. This motif began as the central tenet of my PhD dissertation. His PhD was in 1976 when he started researching along these lines. This is his research program in 1976, and he's continued to develop this and write books about it and continue the research because there's always new scholarship coming out every year. And so he's very interested to see how scholars, whether Christian or atheist or from other skeptical backgrounds, how they think about certain facts related to the resurrection of Jesus. Each event had to be established by more than adequate scholarly evidence and usually by several critically ascertained independent lines of argumentation. Additionally, the vast majority of contemporary scholars in relevant fields had to acknowledge the historicity of the occurrence. So this is what we call the minimal facts argument, the minimal facts uh, way of talking about the resurrection. And... I think this is really great. I I really do. Because I'll give you two reasons why. One, using the minimal facts approach to Christianity or to the resurrection, using this approach that I'm going to show you in just a minute, it's it's very lightweight. It's very easy. As opposed to having to prove the entire 66 books of the Bible is true and inspired, you just have to prove that 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead. It's an easier thing to do. And second of all, you can, you can talk about these four facts with anybody. doesn't matter if they are educated or uneducated, his, a history-minded person or a sci-fi-minded person or a math person or just whoever. doesn't matter. Young, old. It, these, are, these are common sense facts that every one of us has access to. And so there's a universal applicability to them. And I think it'll really help in conversation. So here are the four. So we don't need to establish that the entirety of the Bible is true. We don't have to get into the difficult uh, issues of science in the Bible or talk about 
sexual ethics, which is like at the forefront of so many people's minds today when it comes to considering Christianity, uh, we can bypass a lot of these more complicated issues and just zero right in on the core itself. Was Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead or not? And the great thing about it is if you can convince somebody of that, if you can show them the reasons why and they're convinced by it, the rest of the gospel naturally flows out of that one piece of historical information. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then guess what? He's the Messiah. You know why we know that? Because the sign above his head said that he was the Messiah, and that's the accusation they were crucifying him for. If God raised him from the dead, it proves that that sign is actually true. And it also would then lead us to the question, well, what is the Messiah? What does Messiah even mean? Well, Messiah means that he is the one anointed by God to rule over the kingdom. So you get the Messiah, you get the kingdom, and then the question comes back, well, why in the world did God let him die if he's the Messiah? Ah, it's for your sins. He had to die, right? And so just from starting at that resurrection, if you can, if you can work with somebody on that, everything else of the gospel itself, which is the starting point. It's not the whole of Christianity. It's the starting point. It's the seed that grows into the tree, okay, will uh, follow from that. So that's why I'm so excited about this approach. So I use uh, four facts that I got from William Lane Craig, who has kind of reduced down the number of facts that Gary Habermas originally worked with. And I'm going to share them with you now. So the first one up is the honorable burial. And so this is the question, how do you know Jesus wasn't buried in a common grave with other criminals. How do you know Jesus was in a known tomb? Look, you've got to have Jesus in a known tomb in order for any of the rest of this stuff to work. It's the starting place. And so I've got, and I have them in your notes there as well, I've got three reasons. The first one is there are multiple early independent sources that say Jesus was buried in a known marked tomb. And look, this approach, the minimal facts approach, is not assuming the Bible is inspired by God or a spiritual book. It's assuming the Bible is a collection of historical documents. Okay, now we believe the Bible is more than just a collection of historical documents, but it's not less than a collection of historical documents. So uh, the way historians do history, their historiography, is they sift through historical documents and they try to figure out, well, what in this can I actually trust that actually happened and what in this, you know, are they just making up or are they exaggerating, right? That's what historians do. They try to figure out what parts to trust. And so the way historians do this is they make arguments. They make a case for different facts. And one of the reasons why they would believe something is more likely to be true is if there were independent sources that all were saying the same thing. And so I have here for you 1 Corinthians, Mark, and John. These are three independent sources. I know they're all in our Bible, but they're different documents from different people at different times that later got put into what we call the Bible. But the Bible is a, a library of all these different documents. So these actually count as independent sources. The first one by Paul, the second one by Mark, and the third one by John. And these all attest, and they're early, they're all within the first century, they all attest to the fact that there was a burial for Jesus, an honorable burial. Number two, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely, he's the one that buried Jesus, he's unlikely to be a Christian invention since he is not one of the disciples but a member of the Sanhedrin, the very body that condemned Jesus. Look, if, you're, if Christians are making it up, 
which is the alternative here. Either Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in his tomb, or later Christians like Paul, Mark, and John, well, especially Mark and John, made this, made this up. Okay? Look, if you were going to make it up, you would put Peter as the one who buried Jesus, or Mary as the one who buried Jesus. Right? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? We never hear about him ever again after this. He's not a significant person before this. Right? He's just some random guy, and he's a bad guy. He's, he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's not, he's not the kind of person a Christian author is going to make up if it didn't actually happen. And then number three, no competing burial story exists. Even enemies never claimed a common grave or that Joseph's grave was inaccurate. So this is a weak argument. It's an argument from silence, which is always the weakest form of argumentation. But, it, but it's an interesting argument because people were opposing Christianity right from the beginning. Think about it. If you read the book of Acts, right from the beginning, there is plenty of opposition to Christianity. So much so that the apostles are hiding behind closed door for fear, right? So we have opposition, early opposition against Christianity. The day of Pentecost comes, and this movement just goes viral, right? Thousands of people put their faith in Jesus, specifically that God raised him from the dead. All right? Now, if you're the Jewish leadership, and you know, based on what happens at Golgotha every time there's an execution, hey, he's just dumped in a common grave over here, You're, you can handle this because there's no basis, there's no way to get this thing going. But if, if it was in a, in a known tomb, then it's a lot harder to deal with this kind of thing. All right, on to the second one. So, I mean, if you prove that Jesus was buried in a, in a known tomb, I mean, this is not going to give you the resurrection. But it's our, our starting point. It's our H. And then we move to E, the empty tomb. How do you know Jesus isn't still in his tomb? That was the question I started with, right? So we have several independent sources that attest to an empty tomb. We have Mark. We have Luke Acts. Same person wrote both. And we have John, once again, three sources, three early first century sources that attest that the tomb of where Jesus was buried was, was empty after he was buried in it. Okay, that's the, that's the key factor here. Number two, a movement founded on Jesus' resurrection could not get far if his body was still in a known tomb. Otherwise, early opponents could just bring Jesus' corpse out, disproving the resurrection. Once again, you have opposition. You have strong opposition to, to this Jesus movement. The strong opposition to the Jesus movement, what do they do? They arrest the Christians over and over. They threaten the Christians. They beat the Christians. They start killing us. But what don't they do? They don't go to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and say, look, this is your Messiah. He's dead. That would be the most effective strategy in this situation where you have a movement starting on this belief that God raised him from the dead. And number three, that women first discovered the empty tomb is unlikely a Christian invention since Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us women weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a court of law. So if you're making it up later, you wouldn't put women as the ones who discovered the empty tomb. You would put men as the one who discovered the empty tomb. Well, God didn't make it up later. He decided that he would have, have his son raised and that it would be women that would have that honor. I love that. Number four, the Gospels lack marks of legendary development and theologizing in the resurrection narratives. So this is the idea that when you read the, the, the resurrection narratives, 
There's not really even an explanation of what actually happened. The resurrection itself? Think about it. Do you know what happened? What do we know? Well, the women were on their way. Why were the women on their way? Oh, they were great believers. They were like, oh, we're going to get there, and we're going to meet this like disguised gardener, and he's going to be Jesus. No, 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 no. Why were the, what were the women doing? They thought Joseph was incompetent. You know, you can't trust this, this knucklehead to prepare the body correctly. We're going we're gonna to do it right. And they're fussing with each other on the way there. Who's going to move the stone? Are you going to move the stone? I'm not going to move the stone. The stone's too heavy. What are we going to do about the stone? Right? This is the reality of the resurrection narrative. They get there, and it's already empty. We don't have... In the Bible, in any of the Gospels, or in these other sources, we don't have a narrative that explains what actually happened during the resurrection. You know why? Because nobody was there. I mean, well, not nobody, but Jesus was there. (laughs) But there were no witnesses. The The eyewitnesses, what did the eyewitnesses witness? The empty tomb. And were they like, yes, he's alive? No. They were like, where's Jesus? Somebody, somebody moved him. Oh, no. Right? It's, it's, it's so much more real and historical than if it was a theological invention where they come there, he's raised, they see him, they immediately believe, and they say, and that's why I know I'm going to be resurrected one day. That's theologizing. It's all historical reported. We'll get more into that in a minute. Number five, the earliest, this is on the empty tomb, the earliest Jewish polemic his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep, presupposes an empty tomb. So the standard line Jesus' enemies used against Christianity was that the disciples stole the body. That's a conspiracy theory. But even the standard enemy line against Christianity admits accidentally that the tomb was empty. So that's what we call a hostile witness. It's the best kind of evidence in a uh, situation like this. All right, number three, appearances. How do you know they had experiences in which they believed they saw the resurrected Jesus? This is when it's very carefully worded. This criterion here is not saying that Jesus was raised. It's saying that they had experiences in which they believed they saw him raised, okay? Because historians are not allowed to talk about supernatural things. There's, There's what we call a naturalistic bias in the field, Uh, which I think is crazy, but hey, if we're going to play the game, we've got to play it by their rules, right? Uh, All right, so here are the reasons why we know that people claim to see Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Well, we have the early creed of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. If you're already in 1 Corinthians 15, you can take a peek at that in verse 3 there and following, and you'll see that what's there is a list of appearances, So we have Cephas, then we have the 12, then we have 500 brothers at once, and then we have James, and then we have all the apostles, and then Paul adds himself on to the end of that list. Now, Paul got this statement of faith, this what we call a creed. He got this from others who came before him. And he had delivered that to the Corinthian church when he went to Corinth, probably sometime in the 50s. So this is a very early statement. This is, not, this is not from decades and decades later. Scholars pin it down to within five years. Some scholars even less than five years from the events themselves. So this is not like legendary development over centuries that myths develop and, and people start to believe things. No, this is very early on, this creed, and it's embedded in 1 Corinthians itself. And when, when you look at the, at, the, at the statement there, you'll see that it, it uses very memorable 
terminology. It's very short. You know, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and according to the scripture, and that he was raised, and that he appeared. And there's a rhythm to it, which is good for memorization. So this is a very early creed, and it contains a list of eyewitnesses. Number two, the gospel appearance narratives contain earmarks of eyewitness testimony, and their divergences exclude the possibility of collusion. Whew. I guess I really worked on that sentence. What that's saying is you see an accident, right? Let's say there's a busy intersection, two cars crash into each other. You have some people on this side of the road, other people on the other side of the road. You have people in cars, people on bikes, people just sitting there on a bench, and they see the whole thing. The police come, and they start interviewing eyewitnesses because some, let's say somebody was severely injured or even killed in this accident. All right, So the police are canvassing eyewitnesses, and they're trying to find out, well, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? And you know how eyewitness reportage works? It differs based on your perspective. So if, if, you're, if you're watching a car accident from this side of the road and the cars came this way, then you would say, well, they, they were going this way and uh, this accident happened. Well, if you're standing on the opposite side of the road, it's going to be the other way, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have a different perspective. Now you can see the driver's side, whereas before you saw the passenger side, depending on what perspective you have. If you're sitting, you see things at a little different perspective and so on, different angles. And this is the way eyewitness reportage works, just in general. You could be, we could be talking about anything. I'm talking about a car accident right now, okay? Now, if we transfer that to the appearances that we find in the Gospels themselves, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at the last chapter or two of each of those Gospels, you'll see a list of appearances. They are just like eyewitness reportage. It's not like you had Matthew and Mark and Luke in a room and John, uh, he was young, so maybe he was sitting on the end there and, uh, you know, they're like, hey, guys, you know, let's make up some really good resurrection appearances. And uh, why don't, Luke, why don't you take the guys on the road to Emmaus? That was a good one. And uh, Mark, why don't you just sort of like end with the empty tomb and a little statement and just like give it a cliffhanger. That would be great. And John, you know, you can do this whole thing with the fish and all this. There are no marks of collusion between the Gospels. When you compare them to each other, they, they have these totally different perspectives, and they also overlap in interesting ways, too, just like if they were actually there and they had witnessed these things. Number three, that the disciples failed to anticipate or believe in Jesus' resurrection, even after they found out about the empty tomb, is unlikely to be a Christian invention. Um, this is the, the criterion of embarrassment, once again. Uh, that if something's embarrassing, you're probably not going to say it about yourself if you're making stuff up. Number four, James and Paul both did not believe in Jesus as Messiah, but became leaders in the church after they claimed they saw him. So if you, if you say that they didn't see Jesus, they didn't have a, uh, an experience where they believed it was Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time explaining these two guys. James, this is not the, the apostle James, this is Jesus' brother. And we know Jesus' brother didn't believe in him. It says so very clearly in the Gospel of John that his brothers did not believe in him. I mean, what would it take to convince you that your brother was the Messiah? <laughs> right? So how does James do a turnaround to such a degree that he's now a pillar of the church? He believed he had an appearance. He believed he saw Jesus alive. He believed that his brother really was the Messiah. Say that with Paul. How, how in the world would Paul, a persecutor of the church 
who's, who's running in this direction as fast as he can, suddenly and inexplicably turn the other way and start promoting Christianity. He had an appearance. He, he had an experience in which he believes he had seen Jesus. All right, on to number four here, resurrection belief. How do you know they believe God raised Jesus from the dead? Now, once again, I'm not saying God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm saying, how do you know they believed God raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus' original followers came to believe that God raised him from the dead. Well, look, that belief, and I know this, this one is probably the strangest of all of them because like, I'm using resurrection belief as evidence for resurrection belief. But you have to, you have to just work with me here, and I'll explain it. Okay, It's not circular, not, not in the least. The idea of a resurrected Messiah was completely foreign to first century Judaism. They did not have the idea of a dying Messiah or a rising Messiah. It just wasn't in view. And if you look at the Hebrew Bible, you're going to have a little statements over here about the suffering servant who will die, but it doesn't say Messiah there. And you have a little statement over here about how uh, there's, you know, sit at my right hand, but it's like not clear that that's resurrection. Or you read Psalm 16, uh, which is later quoted as explaining resurrection. If you read it in its original context, I don't think you're going to see resurrection on its own. Only after the events can you look back at it and be like, oh, that's what that's talking about. Here are just a few facts about first century Jews. First of all, they didn't believe in a dying or rising Messiah. Jewish belief about resurrection was a group event. It was corporate at the end of time. It was not supposed to happen to one person. It's a group event. You read Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame, contempt. Disciples would have more likely imagined him in heaven with God, at God's right hand, something like that, or awaiting the last day in Sheol, in the grave. Much more likely to believe Jesus was a failed Messiah after his execution. Uh, that's the standard thing that happens when your Messiah gets executed by the government. You stop believing in him. So, uh, I mean, coming up and saying, well, hey, guys, no, I think he's alive. That's just weird. You have to, that's what I'm saying. This whole, this whole resurrection belief point is to realize how weird it is for them to say this and to go in this direction. The disciples, number two, so strongly believed in Jesus' resurrection that they were willing to die for it, even though they knew if it was true or not. Now, sometimes people will say, well, okay, well, Sean, what about Muslim martyrs? There are plenty of Muslim martyrs, too, and they they die for their faith. Okay, all right. Somebody who dies for their faith, a martyr for their faith, what what does that tell you about them? It tells you that they are sincere. It doesn't tell you that what they believe in is true. It tells you that they think it's true. Why are these martyrs special, these first-gen Christian martyrs like Paul and James in particular, of whom we have significant historical attestation, both within the biblical documents and outside the biblical documents. Why why are they so significant? Because they were there. They knew if it was a lie. You know, if I die for Christianity, what do you know? You know that I believe that it's true so much that I'm willing to die for it. But I wasn't there. They were there. At what point when Peter is being arrested and tortured and executed, does he say to his torturers, all right, all right, I made it up. Actually, it was John's idea, and I just went along with it. Right? At what point does he say that? And yet, these people, they get executed, they get tortured, they get chased around from city to city. Why don't you just say you gave up? We don't even have one of them say, okay, guys, I made it up. 
What we, the, the, only, the only oddball one we have is Judas. And what happens to Judas? Oh, man, I can't believe he's, he's overridden with guilt. And he kills himself because he believes it's true. He feels bad. You know, where's the rogue disciple that's like, hey, guys, I'll tell you what really happened. They're not there. All right, uh, so then number three, without resurrection belief, it's impossible to explain how a Jewish sect could launch a faith in a crucified Messiah. Look, a crucified Messiah is, a, is, a, is not a Messiah at all. It's a failed Messiah. To be crucified is a, is a supremely shameful act in antiquity. And in an honor-shame culture, like in that part of the world at that time, even just like mentioning crucifixion in, in polite company would be frowned upon. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. And yet, crucifixion moves from this sort of like horrible thing that the evil Romans are doing to us to the, the, the very symbol of salvation itself. How do you explain that without a resurrection? <laughs> you know? All right, so, and then the last one is the disciples lack motives to lie about the resurrection. They didn't get money, women, power, protection, or fame within their lifetimes, right? These people were just basically uh, beaten from town to town and suffered and in hiding. There's no clear motive. All right, so here's the question. Can you hear the evidence for the resurrection? You see it there? H-E-A-R, honorable burial, empty tomb, appearances, resurrections. I'm telling you, you can talk to your coworkers, you can talk to your friends about these things. You can bring this up in a conversation. It would be easy. You'd just be like, what do you think about the honorable burial of Jesus? They're going to be like, the what? Be like, well, yeah, Jesus, you know, he, he was crucified. Everybody believes that. What do, you th- what do you believe about the burial? Oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Do you think the Christians invented Joseph of Arimathea? I mean, you, you just gently prod and, and work with it. And th- these, are, these are common sense things that anybody can see. The empty tomb, the appearances, and the resurrection belief. What, I'm, what Gary Habermas, and I, I didn't make this point before, so I'm going to make it now. Gary Habermas, the strength of his case of, of looking at these minimal facts, and he's got more than this, but these are the, the four I, that I think are really sluggers. His point is not only that these are historically as certain as historical events can get, but that the majority of scholars, both believing and unbelieving, all agree that these are historically factual events. And so then the only question that's left is what's the best explanation of these four facts? I believe the best explanation is that he's alive, that God actually raised him from the dead, you know, this is a groundbreaking fact. I mean, if, if it's really true, I mean, this is huge. It means that death is not the end, that the biggest enemy of humankind is already defeated, and that we have a living hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, there are other options, too. I'll show you the other options. There's the swoon theory. That's the idea that Jesus passed out on the cross, and the coolness of the tomb revived him, and that in a severe state of woundedness, he was able to push open the stone and present himself to his disciples and they were able to nurse him back to health. There's a couple of problems with that theory. One is that Romans were really good at executing people. And the accounts we have, you know, it seems like they were pretty sure that they got the job done, right? Even after he looked like he was dead, they speared him just to be sure. And if, if, if a Roman soldier failed to execute somebody, they would get executed themselves. So they have, good, they have good motive to finish the job. And this is their job. This is what they do. They kill people, the people that are in charge of execution. Second of all, that would be a resuscitation anyhow. It wouldn't be resurrection. Resurrection is that he died and he came back to life. 
as opposed to, he came really close to dying, he passed out, and then he healed slowly over time. That's not a resurrection. And it wouldn't help explain the resurrection belief. Number two is the conspiracy theory. That's the idea that the disciples stole away the body. But I think this fails because there's a lack of motive for the disciples to do that. They had nothing to gain from this. Um, And also, they, like I said before, were martyred. They died for their belief that he really was raised from the dead. Number three, the hallucination hypothesis. That's the idea that they just hallucinated Jesus. This is a a partial theory because it doesn't explain the empty tomb at all. Uh, So you really have to combine it with other theories. But the problem with the hallucination hypothesis is that hallucinations, first of all, they're, they're a projection of what you already know. And like I said to you before, resurrection was not a central part of Judaism in the first century. It was sort of like a tangential issue. And it was something that happened to everyone at the end of time. Saying that Jesus was raised from the dead would have been a, you know, that's not what they would have hallucinated if they were going to hallucinate. And hallucinations don't, <laughs> think, think about uh, when we see the resurrection appearances and Jesus shows up in the middle of the room. Okay? How, how do the disciples react? Ah! <laughs> They're all scared. I mean, hallucinations will work like this. You're grieving, you're sad, you're like, oh, I can't believe he's gone. You know, I just wish I could see him again. And and maybe you're overtired or you had some strange food or maybe you had too much wine or I don't don't know. And and then you you, you think you see him, right? I mean, that's that's hallucinations. Hallucinations are not, boom, a man appears in the middle of the room. Everyone freaks out and the guy says, peace, it's okay, it's me. And they're just like, how do we know it's you? You know, it, it, that's not the way hallucinations work. And then they give him a piece of food and he eats in front of all, I mean, that's just, that's not a hallucination. I mean, if it's a hallucination, I mean, it's a whole other level of like virtual reality with multiple players, right? Um, and then you have the 500 brothers at once. You try hallucinating 500 people at once. Or uh, James or Paul. I mean, these are, these are not, they don't fit within hallucinations. And then you have the twin brother hypothesis. Have you ever heard this one? That's the idea that Jesus died, or maybe his brother died, his twin brother died, and then the other one presented himself alive and says, I'm back from the dead. A scholar invented this theory because he couldn't get away from the four reasons I already showed you. And so he, this is called an ad hoc theory. It's just made up for this particular... There's no evidence of uh, Jesus having a twin anywhere in all of the historical documents up until this guy made up this theory just recently. So uh, it's, it's a theory without any evidence, and I think we can safely dismiss it. Now, as far as other leaders of Messianic and quasi-Messianic movements, we have a whole bunch from around the time of Jesus. In 4 BC, we have Athranges. In AD 6, we have Judah the Galilean. 36, the Samaritan prophet. In 45, Thutis. In uh, 58, the Egyptian prophet. In 69, Simon bar and 132, Simon ben Kosaba, who gets renamed to Bar Kokhba and is hailed by Rabbi Akiva as a Messiah. These are all leaders of Messianic-type movements, okay? N.T. Wright says this. I just want to conclude on this. We note at this point, as an important aside, how impossible is it to account for the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah without the resurrection? We know of several other Jewish movements, messianic movements, prophetic movements, during the one or two centuries either side of Jesus' public career. Routinely, they ended with the violent death of the central figure. 
Members of the movement, always supposing they got away with their own skins, then faced a choice. Either give up the struggle or find a new Messiah. Those are your options. If the person you're following dies and gets caught by the government and executed, you give up or you find another Messiah. Either you go home or you get a new one. Say, making up and say, oh, he's raised from the dead. That's just not, you just don't do that. That's weird. If you do it, it's weird unless it actually happened. And then it would make sense. Had the early Christians wanted to go the latter route, they had an obvious candidate, James, the Lord's brother, a great and devout teacher, the central figure in the early Jerusalem church, but nobody ever imagined that James might be the Messiah. So what we have here is solid historical reasons to believe that God, the, the hypothesis, God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of the historical facts that are accepted by people from various different backgrounds about what happened. And so what I'm saying to you is if there's a hole in the middle of history, the shape of the resurrection of Jesus, the best explanation is that there was a resurrection of Jesus to explain all of these different facts. N.T. Wright goes on to lay out seven mutations that change from Judaism to Christianity on the subject of resurrection. And he says, it's, it's just too much. Like, how, how do we figure out such a change from th- how people think about this subject to how they think about it as Christians without actually seeing a resurrection themselves? Well, that concludes this presentation. If you have any questions or comments, come on over to restitudio.org. It'd be great to get your feedback there. On our previous series about Christian giving with Will Barlow, Kim wrote in saying, you make some good points about the verses in Malachi. However, I know experientially that tithing and abundant sharing are beneficial. I agree that there are many ways and channels to give, and it includes giving of skills and time. I guess the bottom line for me is that we can't outgive God. He is generous, and we are called to be generous as well. Well, thanks for writing in, Kim. Certainly don't dispute your bottom line there. I think Will Barlow's main point here about tithing is that the specific system of tithing in the Old Testament is not what people practice today. What they practice today is giving exactly 10%, and that is not really what a tithe was in Old Testament times. It was actually a lot more complicated than that. And so maybe shying away from that language a little bit makes a lot of sense for Christians today. I personally tend to use the term offering just because it's simple and it covers, doesn't matter. if. And I think it's great if somebody wants to give 10%, they want to give 15%, if they want to give whatever percent they want to give. You know, that's between them and God. And uh, so I, I tend to use the word offering or giving to describe that. And uh, I think your bottom line here is indisputable that we cannot outgive God. He is generous and we are called to be generous as well. Amen. Uh, on another note, We have had some feedback on the whole question of the intro music. I had nuked the intro music, partly inspired by a number of other podcasts that I listen to that also have snubbed intro music in their podcasts. And uh, I got a little response on that from someone called Katie Cat Kid. And uh, Steve Dye will put out a little poll on the Facebook group. And as it turns out, the majority of people would 
like to keep the music. So that's why I put the music on the beginning of this episode. Matthew Elton wrote in saying, love those vibes, uh, referring to the, the song Good Vibes. Kind of a funny name for a song. And uh, Eric wrote in saying, I've always enjoyed the musical intro, never felt like it was too long or annoying in any way. All right, Eric. Well, here you go, buddy. Here's The music is back. And I realize it's impossible to keep everybody happy, but uh, we'll keep it for now and stay flexible for whatever the future might hold. Thanks to everyone who voted in on that. If you are not yet part of the Restitutio Facebook group, why not come on over and uh, hit the uh, join button and we'll let you in there and we'll we'll, uh, be glad to interact with you and you can ask questions. And there's so many really wonderful, godly women and men in this group that can respond and give you good resources to look into, uh, many different questions that people have, including whether or not we should keep music. So I guess that that issue is settled now. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to give to Restitutio, you can do that on our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.